0: Hello, welcome to another episode of a SquarePix podcast. Today, we have a special guest and a special episode. Today, also, Dr. Alexandra Hain is co-hosting this podcast with me. Thank you, Lexi, for being with me.
1: Yeah, happy happy to be back, happy to be here in your fancy new digs. Our actual special guest for today, I feel like I'm old news, but we're joined by Dr. Joyce Kamenitz, who's a psychopharmacologist, which is a fancy term for psychiatrists, which I learned today. And she's a fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. And you're going to hear more about her throughout this introduction, how she knows Arash, and how she helped kind of kick off this whole movement, whether she knew it or not at the time, but what it's turned out to be.
0: Thank you, Lexi, for the introduction. Let's get started. Hello, Joyce. Thank you very much for agreeing to spend time with us today. I I really appreciate the time you took. And also, thank you, Lexi, for agreeing to co-host this podcast with me. Having you here is going to help us really to go deep in certain topics, and I appreciate your time also. How about we start, Joyce, with a little bit of background information on you if you tell us, I, I know a little bit of that, like how nonlinear your path uh, has been. Do you know about that, Lexi?
1: Only a little bit. I know that it was later that you went back to med school. So okay.
0: maybe maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and also for our listeners to know you better.
2: Okay. To start off with, I am from a hick town on the eastern shore of Maryland, and no one else in in the world is from there it's like really isolated so i go up to college in boston in the 60s and it was insane and i didn't didn't fit in but it, at any rate i got a degree in sociology at, in 1971 i then wrote computer manuals for 10 years mm. That's it was so cool yeah it was it, it, at the time boston was the hub of where a lot of uh, software and hardware was being developed it, in the late '70s, I decided that there wasn't enough redeeming value in doing that, so I I went to pharmacy school, and that's where I first went to UConn. Finished pharmacy school in 1983, and then less than a year later, started medical school. So I was at that point 35 years old. So then, med- when you
0: started, or when you finished? When I started. Okay.
2: You can just imagine what it was like being 35 years old. Well, maybe you can't, Lexi, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> not <laughs> um, quite yet. <laughs>
2: yeah, you know, Like I was so old compared to everybody else in the class, but it, it was interesting. So did medical school, then a residency, four years of medical school, then a residency in psychiatry and opened a private practice in 1992 in psychiatry and practiced for 30 years. So and I just retired and June,
0: kind of retired. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, I I know that it was quite impossible to find enough time in your schedule to be able to do this before your retirement. So this is our good luck. This is my pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. That's a very interesting path you took. (laughs) And I, I know you very well. Actually, you are the person who initially diagnosed me with ADHD. I don't know what date, but I, I was. It was about so like ten years, ten years ago. ago. <laughs> yeah, not that my diagnosis matters, but it was interesting that you were maybe the fifth therapist or psychologist that I was seeing at that point. I was going from one to another one to be able to do something about my anxiety slash depression. I was feeling that at, at that point, but you were the first one who told me that I may have ADHD and I never asked you what made you think that I may have ADHD and how come other people missed it. And um, so I don't know, I mean, like it's Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, long time ago, but if you can kind of bring up those memories.
2: Sure. Anytime somebody presents to me with a, a treatment resistant depression or anxiety, in other words, anyone who's seen multiple different providers, if you will, the question always is in the back of my mind, are we looking at something else? Mm. And the something else that I've come to understand is an undiagnosed ADHD. So you had seen several people who didn't make that diagnosis. So that was in my thinking about you. And by the way, it's something I ask everybody Mm. Even if it's the first time I see them, I'll do a screen for attentional issues. So that's how I got to it. You also talked about some common symptoms of ADHD, procrastination, Mm -hmm. difficulty in forcing yourself to do things. So it kind of was on my radar. As for why other people didn't do that, that's a long discussion about – the framework of medicine, the framework of, if you will, education.
0: Maybe actually it's going to be useful for our listeners if you can tell us a little bit about that because I suspect there are a lot of people out there that they may be facing a lot of anxiety. I'm not suggesting at all whomever Mm -hmm. has anxiety probably is related to ADHD, but I think there is some useful information in there for them to understand like how your field your colleagues generally look at this and like what are the shortcomings of like their evaluation after years of practice
1: follow-up with that specifically with adults Mm -hmm. or people outside of Mm -hmm. the the k-12 education system
2: okay let me take the first part of that i think if you think about anxiety and adhd as a Venn diagram, mm-hmm. where you know you have a big blob of ADHD and a big blob of anxiety. S- at some point, they intersect. And so the question is, I-, I-, I think that one of the problems that some of my colleagues face is that they don't look at the ADHD blob. They only look at the anxiety blob, mm-hmm. and they focus in on that. And I think you know part of the reason for that is because of how the medical system is set up we don't have time to think about these things in a in a more holistic manner so i think a lot of times what ends up happening is okay let's focus on the anxiety and deal with that and and we don't th- think about the adhd part am i being clear about that yes. yeah yeah and it's really too bad because the anxiety is a fallout of the ADHD and to Lexi, to address your thoughts, your question. One of the things that always tips me off about an adult with ADHD is if they present with anxiety, because imagine, I mean, imagine here you are an adult, you've got adult responsibilities, like 55 plates in the air that you're trying to spin all the time. Mm -hmm. That's what'll make you nervous. Mm -hmm. So, the anxiety is really a key, and then if you look a little bit farther to the procrastination, to the impulsivity, you know, the difficulty f- focusing, hyper focusing on only stuff mm-hmm. you like, you know, all of those other questions come into play. But the anxiety for it is—you have to look at the anxiety as one piece of possibly many other problems. ADHD being one of them. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I I, I want to th- make sure that I. Frame my question clearly, would just ADHD itself without anxiety bother someone to a point that they come to you and say, oh, you know, I have like this attention thing. And again, like <laughs> aside, without any anxiety experience.
2: I have never seen that.
0: Okay. That's what I
1: expect. In the mm. 30 years. Yeah.
2: And just let me say, I don't see very many kids.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: it's mostly adults. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the thing that struck me when I first started thinking about ADHD as part of the diagnoses I was, I was considering is that almost to a person, and I've told you this, Arash, almost to a person, once the treatment becomes available, they say, Oh, I feel so much calmer. Mm. That was so surprising to me. And that's what made me realize you got to think about what is this? anxiety coming from, Mm. and not just think about it as an entity unto itself.
0: So is it then safe to say that it's not the ADHD characteristics by itself? It is the interaction with the environment and the type of environment and tasks and what they are demanded to deliver every day that may lead to that anxiety problem, and Mm. then they come and see you?
2: interesting observation i think that that very well may be true <clears throat> <clears throat> sorry because if you think about people who had adhd in the hunting gathering era it was an advantage mm. in some ways and so there wouldn't have been anxiety associated with it because it would have been a something that would be useful in that environment but in the environment we find ourselves in now it's really a problem.
1: And I want to circle back to something that you mentioned about the the time that it takes maybe to kind of piece all of that together. Mm-hmm. One of the I'm not sure exactly what to call it, but one of the assumptions when we when we talk about psychiatry compared to psychology and seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist, a lot of times, you know, when you go to a psychiatrist, you see them for like 10-15 minutes. And I don't know if that's something, if it's demand or how it's set up. As an outsider, Mm -hmm. why is it that way with a therapist that we go see them for an hour or so and try and pull apart some of these things?
2: The main reason for that is how people get paid. Mm. Psychiatrists are paid to do medication management. Mm. And they are not paid by insurance companies to do any kind of psychotherapeutic intervention. So there's the throughput that's demanded of physicians and APRNs who prescribe medications. That's really what you're experiencing. It's a function of the system dictated by insurance payment.
1: Wow. I feel like there's so many crossovers there, Arash, when we talk about the education (coughs) system and kind of all of the flaws that we see in just trying to can teach to the masses or things like that how we can pump people out and seeing at the highest level you know when you have these advanced degrees and you're handling people's well-being that it's the same sort of external (laughs) pressures it's very 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 discouraging for physicians who really want to help
2: patients and i actually think that's most physicians Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's really discouraging the things that are impinging on performance in medicine are insurance considerations and malpractice considerations. And it it's very limiting in terms of taking care of people properly. And I think you have the same kind of analogous problems in education. Hmm. Funding, you know, making sure that you teach to the to two, two standard deviations away from the mean rather than to everybody who could offer something.
0: I have it on my list. We are going to spend quite a bit of time on, on the education and how it is. It seems, it appears that it's following the medical model. You're going to spend time on that. But before we, we finish this conversation, you mentioned something. I, I, I want to go back to it. You mentioned that ADHD was an advantage in the hunter-gatherer era. For I'm pretty familiar with the literature, but there might be people out there that they have always looked at it as a dysfunction, like a broken brain or logical disease or mm-hmm. whatever. So you you have the authority now. I mean, like, do you want to kind of explain it to them why that portrayal of ADHD might not be accurate?
2: To the ones who think that it's broke, that your brain is broken? Yeah. Well, I don't think that you can take any kind of human behavior out of the context of of its environment. And I think that's the easy answer to that. In the environment that we have these days, you know, we have certain tasks that we're supposed to do. If someone has ADHD, it's hard for them to focus down on that unless they truly love it. Mm -hmm. So it's an environmental pressure on a brain that works in a way – That's a mismatch. So how is it supposed
0: to work, which now there is a mismatch with the current environment and demands?
2: How is a brain supposed to work?
0: ADHD brain, yeah. Or it is designed to work originally or like...
2: I don't think the ADHD brain can work effectively in the current environment where you're supposed to focus down on tasks and you get this project done, boom, boom, boom. I don't think the ADHD brain can. can but do. there
0: was a time that it was advantageous, right? Yes. So what was that advantage?
2: Well, the advantage was if you saw a lion in the in the woods, you were able to focus on that quickly. And if there was something that you needed to see to be able to help you figure out what to do about the lion, you could do that. You could make the you could make the changes really quickly. It was advantageous to do that Mm -hmm. to be able to change your focus and to be able to move from one paradigm to the next really fast because survival depended on it yes but that's not the case anymore that advantage is not an advantage anymore
0: it's not rewarded (coughs) that behavior is not rewarded at this point yeah to that i would add the risk-taking aptitude that we see frequently in those with ADHD, and like I think that is also a distinctive characteristic of those with ADHD that they have a higher risk tolerance in general. They 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 do a lot of crazy things. I mean, like sometimes it's harmful to them. Sometimes it leads to some finding uh, expo- those exploration, random explorations. I mean, they may lead to some a design of a tool or, for example, like finding a new food source or like one way of like surviving undesirable like uh, situation mm-hmm. that they had, they used to kind of pretty frequently actually face.
2: I, I think the risk taking is definitely characteristic of ADD, ADHD. And I think, as, as we've talked about before, I see that as an issue of dopamine dysregulation. So in other words, dopamine is the neurotransmitter that's associated with reward. Mm -hmm. And so some people would argue that folks who have ADHD don't experience dopamine as intensely as other people. Mm -hmm. So like something that might get me who doesn't have ADD, I don't think, that doesn't get me. If some experience makes me feel anxious, Mm -hmm. that's because my dopamine, my norepinephrine, they are – I'm really attuned to that. Mm -hmm. But people with ADD are not. So it takes a much higher level of stimulation. And I think that translates into a higher, a sense of higher risk. It looks like higher risk to other people, but it doesn't feel like that to the person with ADD. Mm. Am I being clear? Yeah. yeah, Mm
0: -hmm. I experience that every day. I mean, like people tell me like, this is crazy. I mean, like you're not afraid of doing – I mean, like, no, I don't do, like, physically dangerous things anymore, uh-huh. but even, like, you some did, of though. my <laughs>
1: – <laughs> That's maybe now. That might be the kid factor more so than
0: – Yeah, you yeah, probably observed some of that, Lexi, in the lab when we worked together. Yeah.
1: Right? Keep... I hate it. <laughs> it's the worst. Interesting.
0: Is there any vivid memory, Lexi, that you can <laughs> think of now?
1: There are so many – that were just emotionally scarring in terms of working <laughs> with you. <laughs> There's the ones that were more focused around the deadlines. And don't get me wrong, I love procrastination. I think it's an excellent tool. But working on your career award and had to be submitted at five o'clock. Do you remember that? Yes. I just wanted to die. You wanted to go celebrate after I was like, I'm going home and I'm going to bed because I feel physically sick. It got in at 4:59, I think, and it had to go through our system. And some parts weren't done. I mean, it all worked out. You got funded. Good job. <laughs> but watching that happen was one of the worst days. This is the day it was due. We were still revising the main body, and then I, I'm doing like a countdown, and all of a sudden it's like four o'clock. And one of the main sections that needs to be written isn't written yet in term. I think it was maybe the broader impacts. No, it was the, the, sum, or the uh, project summary. summary. Yeah,
0: project summary. Yeah.
1: So the, the thing that's going to get posted on the website that everyone is going to see what this project about wasn't done. And I'm like, it's four o'clock. Come like 445. I'm like, we have 15 minutes. What if something goes wrong? All of these things. This was before I knew that it had to go through our sponsored programs office and they had to submit it. <laughs> And
2: Arash, what were you feeling
1: at
0: 4.45? I was cruising along. So I was just like, exactly. I knew I've tapped into some like higher bandwidth and it's going to be done. And I mean, like, I, I'm i now, it's interesting because now that I look back, maybe I needed that level of stimulation.
2: That's exactly the point I'm making, is that your brain is not sufficiently responsive to dopamine to have
1: made you do that work earlier. Hmm. That's the point.
0: And that is a, a
1: and section. And it could have been done too. So all the other parts, the full meat of it, that was done. It was like you left this thing hanging almost for the rush. <laughs>
0: no, uh, let, let me tell you, because that's, this is interesting. It's been a long time. I can look back and maybe read more into that. This is a very important section. I wanted to be in that kind of like high cognitive function stage to be able to write it. That's why I left it to the end. And I wanted to kind of get that, again, I don't know, like, is it anxiety kicking in? It's not anxiety. It's just Mm -hmm. like that dopamine rush. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, so to kick in and make that bandwidth available to me so I can kind of like work on a section that is very important. I mean, so... And it is all subconscious. It's not that, like, I made that decision consciously, I planned it out.
2: But now that you understand that you need more stimulation to get that dopaminergic sensation of let's do this, can you think of a way that you could get that without making Lexi crazy?
0: I I don't think so. (laughs) No. (laughs) I don't think so. Uh, It is hardwired.
1: I've just gotten better at
2: adapting to it. (laughs) Okay, but that makes it hard when somebody has a d h d working with somebody who doesn't,
0: yeah, and see so we that da- we see that every every day in many, many different <coughs> contexts and environment like one being like education system, i mean like uh, the educator has expectations and the kid is on another like timeline or whatever mm-hmm. I mean like that they want things be done certain ways, certain time and I'm not talking about, I'm not, I'm not uh, legitimizing missing deadlines and things like that. I rarely do that unless I completely forgot about, forget about something. But I can see, it's very interesting, this conversation, that I can see that kind of mismatch of the understanding Mm -hmm. of like how the brain of that person is trying to plan out this task at that moment.
2: Mm And so I I just wonder whether if you realize that you need that that kind of um, <laughs> painting yourself into a corner mm-hmm. to in, to get your creative juices going, would there be a way for you to say, okay, I'm going to paint myself into the corner on Tuesday rather than Friday at 445?
0: I've tried it now. No. <laughs> I cannot fool my brain. It's It's mm-hmm. like so – And you know what? It goes back to what you said. It has uh, some evolutionary traces. Mm -hmm. So when something is designed to perform a certain way, it is bulletproof. It -hmm. cannot be fooled. It cannot be manipulated by just some ideation or saying, oh, you know, I have this fake deadline that's going to kind of like put me in that. No, I mean, like if it is hardwired, encoded like that, it cannot be easily manipulated. It's a hardware Mm -hmm. I would say feature is not a software thing that you can quickly kind of like adjust. It's not a belief
2: it's it's interesting to hear that, and I agree with you it is a hardware feature, but just imagine that the roles were reversed, that lexi were the were the boss, and you were the student. Can you see how
0: I would be extremely frustrated,
2: yeah, so in education and in lesser to a lesser extent medicine but in education that's a problem that's a problem for the for the teacher and for the student Mm -hmm. regardless of which way who has the add and who doesn't
1: so you know this is like how do you deal with that when there's that mismatch Mm -hmm. how people can really work together effectively yes because it is it can be you know an ideal pairing when Mm -hmm. you have the creativity and the ideas and the excitement Mm -hmm. that's there that's wonderful if when you don't want to maybe pursue those things because someone doesn't see maybe the same benefits that way and they just want results and things on time and not even on time but early i'm thinking about the you know the team creativity study that we're working on and how you can see the benefits of these mixed teams, mm-hmm. but at what cost, kind of, if it comes from frustration or mismatches in team dynamics? Mm-hmm.
2: I think with all of the smart people who are involved in thinking about this, to you two being representative of that group, you'll come up with a way to think about this. I mean, you have to find a way to integrate all of these characteristics. Yes. In a system that doesn't value half of them.
0: Yeah. So yeah. I, hypothetically, I mean, like, or on, uh, in theory, there is a solution for that. It's <laughs> not that it's cancer. You have to deal with it. There is no way to kind of, like, do anything about it. I mm-hmm. think, again, like, we can go back to that original design and say, like, okay, Arash's brain is designed to jump into a situation, see something, give you some ideas, and disappear. Mm-hmm. And then like, if there are people that are more excited about materializing something, bringing, applying something, bringing something to reality, then if, again, like in an ideal world, if we have a, a group that they can work together like that so they can take it over from here. On. The problem with that experience that Lexi mentioned was that I was expected to write something. I'm not a writer. I mean, like writing is not my, that's why I was waiting for that kind of high volume of dopamine to be available Mm -hmm. to me. So I get stimulated enough to start that writing assignment.
2: So in thinking about this, you know, if you had to repeat this experience of having to get a, a grant application in or something, could you recognize, okay, I'm not a good writer. Maybe I'll assign that task to somebody else. I'll Shoot the ideas out, but let that person write it, and I'll review it.
0: I have the luxury to do it today. Yes, I'm mm-hmm. working. I am working with a very capable team today. I have this luxury mm-hmm. to do that. I can, in the form of like some bullet, short ideas, I can present it, and then I can get high quality draft, and we quickly turn it out to the final draft.
2: So the other question I had as I'm listening to this is if Lexi had said to you a rush. You're driving me crazy. She's driving that. me crazy. <laughs> I think he's if immune you,
1: to that. At if this you point. don't,
2: it, well, so you said it many times. <laughs> oh yeah. Ah, so that doesn't register for no. you anymore.
1: No, oh. and it goes both ways. Yeah. <laughs> it's the struggle.
2: Okay. Well, it was a nice try.
0: I mean, Le- Lexi was a was a guest in the first episode of the podcast. She thinks she has dyslexia. Uh, She doesn't have a formal diagnosis for that, though, but I agree with her 100%. Uh, And there are writing assignments. I mean, Mm. very recently, we were working on a collaborative project, actually, uh, that she was the main author, and it was pulling teeth, I mean, to the last (laughs) moment. And it took me a couple of reminders that, like, oh, we are really getting too close to the... To the deadline. and Mm -hmm. But this time, again, after going through this and knowing a lot, I knew that she's going to do it. I was 100% confident that we are going to submit that. And we are going to submit a good quality work. What I was worried about, the reason I was sending reminders to her was, is there any way that she can do it with torturing herself less, essentially, without Mm -hmm. suffering as much? So... And I told her after we submitted that, like that it might not be that healthy to operate in that high anxiety mode. I don't know if you want to add anything, Lexi, to that.
1: Yeah, I mean it, that's the thing too, where I don't have really the leg to stay on stand on when I say, please don't do that, because every grant <laughs> mm-hmm. I've ever submitted has been on the last day. Mm-hmm. Granted, mine haven't been at five o'clock, but maybe it's at three o'clock. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I don't know if some of that is just kind of what I learned. I learned to work in that environment, and now I replicate it. Mm -hmm. And how much of it is that I also, I I reach that productivity. I don't want to drag things out for three days if in that really high anxiety environment I can get it done in one.
2: Mm -hmm. When I hear this kind of um, situation, and people might come to my office and say, I get so anxious when I have to write a paper and, you know, what can you do to help me think about this? You were saying, Arash, that sometimes the hard wiring and the hardware make it hard to make changes. And I think that's true. On the other hand, our brains are pretty plastic yes. and we can train ourselves to behave differently. And so I would, I would argue that there is a way to change that kind of behavior by imposing different deadlines on yourself as time passes for this project. And really pay attention to the fact that I don't want to feel anxious at the end of this. And that can be a reason why you make a change. It might not be a great example of how people make change, but it is possible to make change and your brain can accommodate it. Believe it or not, I can see the two of you are just like, (laughs) No. No. (laughs) That's not gonna happen.
1: Oh yeah. I feel like that's more on the willingness side to make that change. Absolutely. We said that on the Yeah, I'm not there yet. Well, you have, to, you have to say, what's the cost of the anxiety? Yeah, and that's the thing. I think learning to also live with that anxiety. Knowing, mm-hmm. s- instead of punishing myself for waiting till that third day, if I know I'm going to wait till that third day, some of that anxiety goes away.
2: You have to make the commitment to yeah. making the change. If it's not obnoxious enough to you exactly to make the change, it's not going to happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So-, so I have to tell you, though, I tried many, many different approaches. Again, like… There are people out there that they're, they have found ways of mm-hmm. like managing this. For example, like there are like different suggestions, like, break it into smaller tasks. I mean, like write one paragraph or don't worry about like your deadline, only do it now for five mm-hmm. minutes or reward yourself immediately with a piece of chocolate, glass of wine, I mean, things like that. There are many, many different- <laughs> Glass wa- of
1: wine for everyone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> there are many Sign different suggestions that some of that I can see <clears throat> that could be ha- helpful for someone who has just like regular responding to emails, things like that. But for the job, for the business that we are in, the demand, I I don't think those strategies can really help us to get to that level. Uh, Although, I have to say that one strategy I found very effective for me to get started with my writing tasks have been a little bit of mindfulness practice for 10 minutes, and Mm -hmm. then I can start. That's writing great. a paragraph two paragraph responding to two three of the emails that has done some magic for me and mm-hmm. very recently I've started doing that so I don't know what it does but like I know that for example I'm procrastinating I have to really respond to this email I have to really submit this kind of like one pager and I'm not starting that I said okay you know let's try th- something 15 minutes of for example meditation and then I'm gonna start. Writing and it works. It works magically. So
2: I think that's great. And I think what's really gratifying to me in watching people change is how creative and individualistic they can be in their solutions to their own problems mm -hmm. if given the space to do that. Yes. And that's really a wonderful thing to see. Yes. So I'm happy for you.
0: Thank you.
1: So, how do you kind of manage that when it is so individualistic? So putting on, you know, your your mm-hmm. provider hat, of your goal mm-hmm. is to help people, but everyone does it differently.
2: I I love that aspect of of my work. And the way that I've chosen to do it is to create an environment in the work that I do with people that they feel safe and mm-hmm. that they can take some experimental steps and that they can feel like they have a foundation under themselves to to do a little bit of thinking about well, let's try this or let's try that. I give them the space. And that's what's really great. It's almost like mm. being a mom and and watching your kid grow. That's how I think about it. So it's not like I have all the answers because I don't. I actually have respect for people's autonomy and creativity in that way. That they'll come up with some answers if given the time and maybe a little bit of help. But the answers are inside of people. Yes. They are.
0: I 100% agree mm-hmm. with you. Yes. And I, I remember even like when you formalized your diagnosis after like the evaluations and everything, I remember I asked you, I mean, it's not that exactly I asked this question, but I asked something about, should I start now taking any medication or not? And I remember you were just like super relaxed. And saying, yeah, that can be an option, but I want you to kind of like educate yourself a little bit more on this. You gave me a list of like two, three books that I immediately ordered on Amazon. And they helped me a lot, actually. And that they, what those books were pretty good because they hinted at the strengths mm-hmm. or unique assets that, and that started all of this work mm-hmm. that like, oh, let's look at their strengths, actually. Let's now, let's change the narrative from deficit to, to strength. And I can imagine if, I was a young adult or a kid, the diagnosis is done, a prescription is written, and then you go home and you just internalize the problems. And mm-hmm. okay, you are you were identified to have a broken brain of some sort. And like, this is the medication you take to fix that issue. And that narrative is going to stay with you. And I've talked to a lot of students in the past few years that they were diagnosed early early as a as a teenager or young adult and they never kind of like they were not told that you can actually learn more about this before you take any medication. I'm not against or pro mm-hmm. I mean like medication. I'm just like saying that like I don't think if other providers they take it as far as you took it at at
2: that point. I'm thank you. I like to again, I I think it's really important to be respectful of from my point of view, of a patient's capabilities mm-hmm. and give them the information, give them the data and let let that person, let's see where it takes you. It's it's not my either responsibility or it's not my place mm-hmm. to say, do it this way. It's just not. You have to find, you have to find a way. And And again, I think one of the problems with medicine these days is that doctors, providers, whatever you want to call us, we don't take the time Mm -hmm. to know who we're dealing with. It's you're here for this, boom, take this medicine, boom, you're out of my face. And that's what the system is demanding. And you just can't, to me, you can't really help people under those circumstances
1: in a proper way. And particularly Mm -hmm. when you mentioned kind of those books and Mm -hmm. hearing about the strengths as well, Mm -hmm. I'm sure when people come to see you, they're not talking about all of the good things no. or the strengths. Arash, of course, you know through everyone that you've talked to, with a strength-based approach, we're never saying that there aren't challenges. Mm-hmm. Of course there's challenges. But being able to kind of look past that too and, and see the full individual and not just, here's your depression, here's a pill for depression, you're fixed, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to see it as a whole person yeah, is something really important that I think a lot of other providers, like you said, maybe don't have time for. I think- doctors, I'll just
2: speak for doctors. Mm -hmm.
1: I think doctors want
2: to do that. I think it's one of the frustrations in medicine that we're just not permitted sometimes by the system to take the time that's necessary to do the nurturing we should be doing.
0: You operated under the same constraints though, but you did
2: it. I didn't operate under the same constraints. I did not take insurance. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, that sounds mundane, but I didn't have to see 50 people a day in order to pay my mortgage. I could do it differently. And maybe some people would say that I was selfish to do it that way.
0: So you really think it's quite impossible to operate the way they're supposed to under the constraints of that system? I
2: think it is extremely difficult, hmm. extremely difficult.
0: It's sad. The, I...
2: the, it is sad. I'll tell you, I know From personal experience, physicians who take the time in the same way that I do to be with their patients in the proper manner that we've been talking about, and then they come home and they have three hours of work to do, to do the EMR, electronic medical record every night. Three hours of work. Mm. I mean, it's just all of those requirements on physicians these days are so onerous. And I think that the people who suffer the most from the system are the patients, number one, and the doctors, number two. It's very sad to me.
1: What do you think it would take to make that sort Mm -hmm. of change from largely probably the insurance companies?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, my husband and I, my husband's a physician also, we've talked about this a lot. And we think that one part of the solution would be to have one payer system. It's not going to be made perfect, but if you take the profit motive out mm. of the medical field, which it should never be in the first place to us, we feel like that would be a good first step.
1: So with all of these challenges, I remember one of the main things that you know, stopped me from going to a therapist sooner was thinking about you know, insurance and who's going to take that. What can someone, particularly younger adults with all the constraints that they have what can they do to make sure they get more of this holistic experience do you have any kind of suggestions for yes, them yes i do i always have
2: suggestions <laughs>
1: <laughs> i think that you know number
2: 1 if you can find friends who have had good experiences with a provider use that recommendation mm-hmm. and it might not be particularly helpful cuz a lot of times young adults can't afford to go out of network and all that sort of thing. But the but what's really I'm thinking is the best way for people to get help under these circumstances, and not for the medication part, but for the other part, for the understanding part, listen to this podcast. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah, listen was... to people who are talking about these exactly. things. That's what because I Because you have about... lived it.
0: I think the information... If they if they look for it, they will find it. That's right. Because the books you suggested to mm-hmm. me, they were like twelve dollars each. I mean, eleven dollars. It wasn't like a crazy thing that is only in the library of mm-hmm. Harvard Harvard Medical School. It was just like a a, a solid self help book type thing. So maybe that is something that should be considered. Because what we think about the approach when we suspect we need to see. It person, I mean, it's like to find a person, I mean, like go to through the medical path, uh, route from the beginning. I think it should be supplemented by some self-awareness.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with that. You can't think that the medicine is going to solve everything. Mm-hmm. The medicine gives you the substrate to do the work you need to do. In other words, if your brain was having problems Completing a particular task, you take the medicine, you'll do better at fixing that, completing that task. Mm -hmm. But that's not the whole answer to the problem. It's a lot of the other issues, like the anxiety, like the lack of confidence, like Mm. difficulty with procrastination. Those things you can get help outside of the doctor patient relationship if you have to. And this, again, I think awareness of these problems is much higher
1: considerably higher than it used to be 10 years ago. One of the things you mentioned is, you know, talking to friends and what works for them. Have you seen that shift in the openness of people being willing to say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with anxiety here. And let me tell my friends about it, my family about it. Mm-hmm. I, I think, yes, I have.
2: I've seen more of a willingness. Unfortunately, I think there's still a stigma associated with cns disorders central nervous system but it's better than it used to be so yes it's good and it's what's nice is that you young people are much more willing to talk about these things than mm-hmm. people of my vintage there's so many people of my vintage that have you know depressions anxieties add every, anything they won't even look at it and that's very very sad to me
1: yeah, just the improvement and the quality of life when yes. you're willing to right look at it.
0: You mentioned this podcast. Thank you. You're, you're so kind not just to mention that because when I sent you the link that we are doing this, you kindly actually listened to the episodes mm-hmm. of it and we met and you gave me solid feedback on that. And uh, I think it would be Very useful to our listeners. If you can share some of those with our listener, you listen to multiple episodes, uh, episodes related to uh, ADHD, Angela, Catherine, Asia for autism, and tell us please a little bit about what you thought when you listened to those. These are very successful people, extremely very Mm -hmm. resilient well articulated, when you listen to them, what was your first impression, first reaction, and then like if that answered any question for you or it added to your 30 years of knowledge of seeing many, many, many people?
2: What struck me as I listened to Lexi and the others was how difficult having their neurodiverse brains made life for them. Mm -hmm. The lack of confidence, the level of Mm. insecurity, the fears, the anxiety, and maybe that's because I'm attuned to thinking about that as a psychiatrist, but it struck me, these are things that everybody talked about, all of your guests talked about, again, you know, from a personal point of view, it made me sad to hear it, Mm. not surprised, but sad, but the other thing that struck me was in listening to them, it was really interesting to note that what helped them was finding a space Mm -hmm. where they were given the time and effort and support to actually use their brains as the however they were without being forced into a rigid mold that kind of nurturing that kind of support as i said to you is very reminiscent of what a parent gives to his or her kids. And it's also, if you think about how people learn, you learn in the context of mild to moderate stress. Mm. People with neurodiverse brains, the environment is too stressful to learn properly. Mm. And it's a testament to your resilience and fortitude that you've managed to get so far. But how hard it is. It's so hard. But when you provide them with that space, with mild to moderate stress, and the support. Look, what's, look what you've accomplished. It's so great. And I was so impressed with that and struck by the similarity of the approach that you're using and the approach that parents take. In the, and it's the same thing in therapy. That's what we do in therapy. We give you a, a safe place with mild to moderate stress, and you can just take off from that.
0: Hmm. What was the evidence of resilience that you can think about, like, what are those traits? I mean, like, these these are su- survivors of traumatizing system, mm-hmm. I call it, I mean, the education system. These are the survivors, I'm a survivor, and I was lucky, it's not that, like, I'm super special, like, I know how to do certain things, it's just, like, I have this resilience, it seems, I want um, to—resilience is just like a very nebulous definition. I want to see if you can kind of unpeel that, like define it better, more clearly, how it manifests itself.
2: I I, I wish that I could define it more clearly, but I'm sure the people who study this would say it's composed of this, 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 and this. I I don't feel like I have that much of an understanding, but I know it when I see it. And it's people who have succeeded despite— very very difficult circumstances and they have re- they have resilience they have the willpower persistence i don't know how i don't know what is, else to say is, i don't, I don't know how else
0: chicken and egg problem here i mean like are they resilient mm. because they went through that and they survived and they learned how to survive or
2: i don't think so i think it's an inherent quality mm. um, and it's inherent in people's nature or not to have that level of resilience. Now you can augment your resilience th- through your experience in life or not, but I think it's, it's kind of what you're born with. And I don't, I don't mean to say, I don't mean for that to sound limiting mm-hmm. because you can build. You can, your brain is plastic enough to be, to get better or to get more the way you want it to be. You know, but like, like for example, I see a lot of people that have had, abusive pasts and some of them have done really well and some of them have really struggled mm-hmm. and it's really hard to understand why this one is is behaving this way is in... it
0: hard for you to understand that like that yes
2: mm. yes it is i mean i accept that some people are going to be able to deal with adversity better than other people will be but i also accept that people can be taught and educated and supported so that they can learn to do better than whatever their baseline might be.
1: I think that's really important because I think that's one of our goals here too is Mm -hmm. to the people that you're talking to, as you said, they've already reached a lot of those higher levels of achievement. Mm -hmm. But how can we reach the people that maybe wouldn't get there on their own and, and show we still have some of those same struggles, but you can do if you're given that nurturing space. Maybe you haven't had it yet. I think that the having the nurturing space is crucial. And whether yes. it
2: comes from a family, a parent, or a teacher, or a therapist, yes. or whatever, that is really crucial.
0: That's exactly what I wanted to add that at the darkest times of my educational experience, there was always that caring teacher, mm-hmm. that caring professor, and yeah. later on you mainly played that role my wife times my mom just the idea it was and it is so subconscious that's very difficult to kind of explain it in words maybe clearly but it's just like you feel that like you have a fallback i mean like it's not gonna i mean the world is not gonna end if even if things go wrong drastically the safest space the courage that helps you keep going it is the environment that kind of like nurturing fear is very important. And and you know, a commonality I've found between all of those that they survive, they make it, they become very successful is like, if you ask them, they can tell you that, that, oh, this this teacher changed my mind. Mm-hmm. Like Lexi, I mean, like what, what was your, I mean, you're sitting here, I mean like, mm-hmm. can you think of like in your educational journey
1: Oh, a teacher? Absolutely. I remember my high school English teacher, Mr. Beerman. Shout out. <laughs> I haven't talked to you in a long time. But it was the only person that taught English. So that was mm-hmm. my the only subject I was not great at. <laughs> and all the extra time that he would spend with me and mm-hmm. being able to admit that I wasn't good at something... And have that be okay and say, oh, you're good at other things. You know, this aspect of English you are good at. You know, there's writing things I can help you with. And I, I remember telling him, like when I got my four on my AP test, because in my mind, I was like, I never have to take English again. <laughs> but having that person that made it an enjoyable class to go to rather than something painful, when it was something I always avoided, absolutely.
2: So the common element here is a nurturing environment Person, teacher, whatever. I I think that's really crucial. And let me just say from the other side of the couch, to find that you can provide that environment, that space for somebody to grow and be successful. That's really fantastic. Yes. That really feels so good for the other person, too. Just FYI. <laughs> you know, it doesn't just go one way.
0: That's why we are having a blast doing this here. I am. I'm we, having a really
2: good yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, That's absolutely. exactly why. That's
0: why, That's right. I mean, like, despite our busy schedules, we have carved out this kind of like many hours to just do this because it's so rewarding.
2: You know, you, you just never know sometimes how... An interaction that you have with somebody is going to play out in yes. the future. I could not have predicted that what we did together would end up in what, you, and, and what you're doing professionally. I, there's no way I could have predicted that. But look what you've done. You're providing the same kind of space for people. You're paying it forward. Whatever I did for mm-hmm. you, you're paying it yeah. forward. And, man, that's such a great feeling for me to know.
0: It is interesting you say that because people that they are nurtured they're supported like that they have this tendency to pay forward other guests that actually we did a we we just had a meeting and that the person told me that i just want to help others that they may have challenged i mean like so it's just that desire and and i have to say that like i really appreciate what they are doing it it is very courageous because they're exposing that they're disclosing this very personal Mm -hmm. thing about themselves there is still stigma around this so it takes courage and you use this courage when you think it is mission critical it Mm -hmm. is a very important objective that you're pursuing and you're absolutely right i mean like if you provide this nurturing environment the person that comes out of it it's gonna replicate this good. And this is just going to scale up.
2: I, I Absolutely. And speaking of courage, I've said this a million times to the folks who come in to see me. It takes incredible courage to actually go to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist to admit that you have an issue that you need to address. It is the hardest thing that people yes. can ever do because it's so threatening and makes you feel so vulnerable. So I always say to people, just think about the courage that it took for you to come in here, hmm. and it really is true.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's very important. And, and I think that, I mean, like again, like I've been in your office, and if I am told something like that, immediately it's therapeutic for me, because it gives me some confidence that I'm mm-hmm. striving for at that mm-hmm. moment. That like oh maybe hmm. I can help myself in this situation. It's Absolutely. funny
2: I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's true.
1: Yeah, I, do. I always find it's a lot harder to help yourself than it is to help other people.
2: Well, if you've if you've grown up with a situation where you have a, a neurodiverse brain, you've also somehow internalized that yes. there's something wrong with you, you know, and maybe I'm not good enough and don't deserve to get help so overcoming that is hard
1: mm-hmm.
2: overcoming that self-image is really hard
1: and i think helping other people it, it really helps with that self-healing too because mm-hmm. when you're able to maybe stand up as an example and say you know look what i've done it helps you believe it yeah like you believe in yourself a lot more it's when you're so given that platform it's lovely
2: to hear that
0: and listening to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks recently on Eastern philosophies and things like that. And I'm convinced that there is no difference between helping others and helping yourself. They're the same thing. They're absolutely the same thing. Both well, I, ways.
2: I think we've been saying that for the past few minutes, actually.
1: Yeah, it is. So do something nice today.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is. They say that. I mean, for example, if you feel bad, depressed, she did mm-hmm. in the morning, give mm-hmm. a big tip when you get mm-hmm. your coffee. It immediately makes you feel better. I've done that. It works. It's just so magical.
2: Right. There was a um, a philosopher in the early 1900s, William James or Henry James, one or the other. I can't remember which one it was. But he said there are three rules in life. The first rule is to be kind. The second rule is to be kind. And the third rule is to be kind. And it's really true. It's very true. So it helps the other person and it can help you too.
0: Those people that they think, okay, I'm traumatized. I was treated unfairly, so I'm going to take it on others. They're just harming themselves more.
2: Absolutely. They're just not getting out of the hole. Yes. It's a, it's a sad worldview that is not going to change by doing the same thing over and over again.
0: And it spreads bad in the world rather than spreading good. Yeah. But so. we're not
2: going to talk about politics. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Once in a while, we touch on that <laughs> in the podcast. So it's a, it's a lovely conversation. I'm really enjoying it. So uh, let's let's talk about the medical model of neuro. I don't think there is a medical model of neurodiversity or how medicine interprets Neurodiversity, the two standard deviation from the norm problem, and and all of those consequences of that.
2: Well, if you're talking about the mainstream medical model at this point, I would say that the interpretation is that neurodiversity is a pain in the ass. <laughs>
0: mm. <laughs> and it, <it's>, for who? <laughs> for for the individual?
2: For the system. Oh, for yeah. the system. Uh huh. I mean, there are certain people who specialize in dealing with neurodiverse individuals, but for the most part, medicine is not geared to dealing with that. So it's like they don't want to deal with it.
1: So medicine and education. (laughs) Well,
2: yeah, we. Yeah, I mean the the goal of the um of the medical model and the goal of the educational model is to educate or treat one and a half standard deviations from the mean. Most of the time. And if you fall outside of that, it strains the the resources of the system, Hmm. in my opinion. You know,
0: for the medical model or the medical field, it is kind of understandable because, for example, with the limited resources, you want to be able to kind of like invest this money to come up with a new drug that can help a larger segment of population, things like that, although it doesn't work even that way. I get that. I mean, like if, for example, you have like $3 million of R&D for like a new drug, I mean, are you gonna spend it on something that's gonna cure five people or like 500? Most of, it's an ethical question. I think most of people, they're gonna go with 500. That is kind of understandable, although the way you portrayed that, I, I I think it's not as easy as that. Although for education, I don't understand why they are following the same model
2: because of money because of resources the limitation here is resources but you we have... are
0: harming ourselves by doing that we are we are marginalizing exactly those people that are needed to be able to come up with transformative solutions for the to take us out of this deep hole that we are in
2: you are preaching obviously, to the converted here. (laughs) We totally agree with you. But, you know, talk to an administrative educational bureaucrat. They don't care about that. Anything transformative, we got to deal with, I have a million dollars and I got to educate this class. So they're going to educate the ones in the middle. It's not any different from medicine. I But
0: is the education... Isn't the educational mission to look at what the demands of the future are and what kind of minds and brains are, or, like, mindsets or talents and skills are needed to be able to do that? I mean, like, not I, – I, I know. I mean, like, now that I'm <laughs> saying this, I'm, like, laughing and say, like, maybe not. <laughs> <But>
2: <laughs> well, that's part of it. Um, There are many competing priorities in education, and you only have a limited amount of resources. So how do you spread that around? Unfortunately, I think the future generally doesn't get very much consideration. Mm -hmm. It's what do you do right now for the main – From
0: outside, what do you see? I mean like you see this – the way the education system is operating – When you look at this black box, Mm -hmm. what do you think is priorities?
2: I think the priorities are educating those people that fall within one and a half to two standard deviations of the mean. I mean, they won't say that out loud because that leaves those other people out of the equation. But that's unfortunately where it's at. I don't say it's right. I'm just saying I think that's what the reality is.
1: It's just the numbers. It's yeah. Just I mean, pumping if, people through the uh, the largest yes, I think, grouping that we can do. Yeah.
2: I think uh, that's
0: true. Although I have a comment about the uh, about this being only resource problem. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of a mindset problem rather than a resource problem because as Lexi said, as I'm I mean, it's just like that one teacher having the right attitude. Mm-hmm. Probably your English teacher, Lexi, didn't spend more more equipment on you. I mean it was just like the way he came across, the the nurturing approach the person had, the willingness to dedicate some of the attention And,
1: and time. Time.
0: Yeah. Time.
2: time is the
1: big thing. Time
2: is the issue. How yeah. much time are you guys not being compensated for all of the things that you're doing? How much is how much are you doing that's not compensated? I bet it's a lot. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Well. Yeah.
0: Someone who comes to education if they are coming to education to make money and become rich, they are misguided.
1: Nobody comes to education to, particularly K12 to get rich, you don't get I'm rich. I'm
0: not suggesting that they have to starve because the because of the decision they make, but I mean, I don't think those calculations of, like, if my every hour of work is compensated, like, proportionally and things like that, I don't think if that should be the driving, governing kind of equation here. So... Maybe in business, yeah, every hour, for example, you open your business, the number of, like, employees you have, I mean, like, everything, I mean, they should be net positive. I mean, it should, it's a very clear equation, you know. For education, if you decide to become a teacher, university professor, I think operating under that equation is a little, like, it's confusing for me. I'm not saying that, oh, every pe- person, like, here, out there needs to kind of, like, do some level of self-sacrifice, and I'm I'm sure the majority of educators there are doing a lot of like self-sacrifice. I mean, like I've, I've observed that mm-hmm. a lot of them, and to a, to an unfair level.
2: I think that's probably true.
0: Yeah, uh, my my concern is that if we constantly say that we have the problem with uh, lack of resources, we may overlook something that is. That can be done immediately, which is providing a more nurturing environment, just not calling it a disability. Mm -hmm.
1: I think we also need to clarify what age level, though, too, because when we're talking about university professors and then we're talking about K-12, there's so much more flexibility in the university system Mm -hmm. without the curriculums and all those other factors, so I think that's true in the university system as educators, we can make a lot of those changes a lot more easily. And we I think oftentimes that's true. Don't
2: everyone has a lot of pressure on himself or herself. You have a, a reserve of energy and a reserve of resilience, if you will. And if you're always tapping into that mm-hmm. and not replenishing it, it you're going to get burnt out. So you're right. It's not just an issue of resources. It's an issue of emphasis on what's the right thing to do. What's, you know, emphasis on the future, you know, transforming the future. How do you make that happen? That's hard. That's hard because we're a society that says, now, let's figure it out now. We're going to do right for now. We don't think about the future very much.
0: So one, one major, major issue that is fitting this problem is a blind adoption of the deficit narrative of the medical model by the education, which very comfortably teachers, they consider it as like a cognitive deficit or like dysfunction or, and look at the, the names. Again, like medical model is pathologizing everything. It, I, I get that. I mean, that's that's what you do. But I never understood why those terms, they should directly be used, like that deficit terminology, that kind of like deficit-based mindset. And the reason for that is not that it's nice. It's not nice. It is stigmatizing. It's threatening. It erodes the self-confidence of the person.
2: I think that's evolving in the same way that we talked about younger people these days not feeling the stigma of psychiatric issues as much as your parents did. Mm-hmm. I, I think that all it's evolving more to be a less stigmatizing situation in education too.
0: For example, at UConn, we have a center of students with disability. If you have ADHD, you have to go register with them. So, it, you, okay, I, but so essentially about- it is when I register with them, I have admitted formally that I'm a disabled person. I never, right. again, like I was out of education when I was diagnosed, but my research data shows that only 16 to 20% of students with formal diagnosis mm-hmm. register mm-hmm. With, with the Center of Student with so, Disabilities of some sort. So,
2: unfortunately, the institutions haven't recognized what you've recognized that you have to look upon a diverse way of thinking about things as a positive. They haven't figured that out yet. Otherwise they change the name. So it's again, I think it's an evolution. If they changed it to Office of Neurodiversity and Creativity, mm-hmm. that would be great, you know? But it's gonna it's gonna take listening to podcasts like this for people who haven't been diagnosed or are asking these kinds of questions about themselves, they're gonna have to get the answers from somewhere. And I would say,
1: you guys are Leading the field in that. Maybe that can be your retirement gig. <laughs> You've got the credentials for this. Kind Doing what? Of, a Doing cross-country what? tour. Saying, oh.
2: Do you well, see
1: the ramifications of this yeah. on the people that you want to help? It
2: would be, uh, you know, I'm I'm rooting for you all. <laughs> Whatever I can do to help, I'm rooting for you guys. Because you're you're the ones that are dealing with this every day whatever i can do i'm happy to do but
0: yeah so i'm i'm silently listening to you and I'm, i really hope that is that way but what i'm observing doesn't give me enough indications that there is enough willingness to go there we have communicated that multiple times with our center of the students with disability that like there is a problem here they don't want to talk about that Again, like I'm criticizing the institutions that I'm hired by. You're you know, gonna have like, to cut this part out. No, I, I'm. I think I passed that stage. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna use some of my tenure luxury.
1: Yes.
2: <laughs> well, this, seriously, but. you've gotten tenure and you've gotten grants to uh, deal with this stuff. Why shouldn't they listen to you?
0: Oh my God! I mean, I wish it was that easy. <laughs>
1: All right, so now that we've kind of switched over and started talking about this crossroads of the medical model and education, it makes me think a lot about impacts of the education system and some of those that led me to you know, going to therapy and learning about anxiety. And when we talk about those feelings, you know, just jumping back to when Arash and I were talking in the first podcast, those events that stay with you as you go forward you know how when you reminisce about the damage of being forced into that box and only looking at the mean and how that comes back and impacts you when we're trying to get this point across that what the education system is doing is incredibly harmful yes how do those two cross over
2: the education in terms
1: of the, the medical model in the education system or how the
0: medical model can explain what the core For example, if you see some situations are triggering that only you can track that to some like or multiple experiences throughout Mm -hmm. like 12, 16 years of education. Well,
2: that's the thing. That's a bunch of thoughts. I think it's the chronic nature of Of. being labeled in a particular way. Mm -hmm. It's the chronicity itself that's a problem because it makes it inescapable. That kind of feeling is there's a certain uh, paradigm that we have in depression. It's called learned helplessness, that you can't fix yourself. And that's, you know, that's a paradigm for depression. So if you have chronically uh, experiencing that, you'll have the symptoms of depression. Now, you know, I think a lot of times in medicine, we don't think about the chronic nature of these sorts of insults. We don't think of it. In the same way we think of trauma, for example, trauma usually is thought of as some a a big, bad trigger event. Mm -hmm. But the kind of ways of looking at yourself, what you learn about yourself, what you learn about how to think about the environment from chronic difficulties, as we've been talking about, that can set off the same kind of physiological reactions that you get. Mm-hmm. From a specific traumatic event, one specific traumatic event so
1: I've never heard it talked about that way and basically this system can you give manifesting us an example, depression like
0: what what can be a triggering or have any experience that come close comes close to that
1: for me mm-hmm. I mean I think it, when it comes back to so many events when I t- think about r- reading, writing and spelling mm-hmm. I have events that, every every age level pretty so much. So it
2: got reinforced over and over oh, again. Yeah. That's the problem. It
1: made me great at memorizing because we played this <laughs> spelling game in fifth grade where you got to throw this thing in. And the night before I would just memorize everything. I can't spell any of those words now. Mm-hmm. I don't have to because of spell check. Right. But it was just I learned that other skill of memorizing. So this chronic repetition
2: of negative ideas about yourself has an effect and the effects can be anxiety or
0: being told that you're deficient you're incapable you need a you need to be on a special program to be able to survive the system or
2: lack of confidence mistrust of your environment mistrust of your own opinions and then anxiety and depression are prominent Mm -hmm. in that
1: so much of it i do think comes back to that confidence and when you erode that from such a young age, mm-hmm. how you learn to build that back? it's again, a
2: corrective experience, mm-hmm. whether it's educational, therapeutic, or fa- family oriented, is that safe environment with mild to moderate
1: stress. That corrective experience is invaluable. That actually ties so well into you know when we talk about providing students with research experiences that have been in these environments where in school it's like you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, and then you get here and you have this open-ended safe space where you're doing research. It, I'm just thinking mm-hmm. about so many ways to tie, pulling quotes from this, mm-hmm. further support for, from you know, a medical professional and why that safe space matters mm-hmm. and why these experiences and the positive research environment for neurodiverse people, can help wash away some of those painful experiences over years that have just been reinforced. From my point of view, when you look at how
2: my primary organ system works, the brain, your brain is going to learn patterns. I mean, it's got patterns of ways of thinking about the world. And if you've been chronically exposed to negativism or disparaging sorts of comments, Mm -hmm. it's you're going to have certain ways to look at the world. Mm -hmm. You're going to feel like you can't fix things. You're going to feel helpless. To me, that's neurobiology. Mm. But what's interesting is you can build new neurobiology. That's always possible. And so some of those ways of feeling and behaving can be changed if you give yourself the opportunity to do that. To me, that's the, the silver lining in this problem.
0: Is it something that we can, as a blanket suggestion to those that they're listening and thinking, okay, like, what can I do? I mean, like, uh, is, is it, it, can we suggest that they look for an environment that gives them some reinforcement, assurance, and like, put them in those situations, get involved in activities that they, rather than just coming, Mm-hmm. to classrooms and be reminded that oh, you're not good at it, this and that
2: mm-hmm.
0: S- through some extra and a lot of like people they may find it through sports and things like that you know but like I think there is more even like a- more aligned with the academic mission of the institution for mm-hmm. example like Plexi mentioned that research we found particularly for those with ADHD, because they get to explore. They get mm-hmm. to be themselves. Right, They get to really operate under like an unstructured type of system mm-hmm. rather than be told that, oh, you solved this problem mm-hmm. 9 a.m. this way. They can do things. I mean, like they can stay up even like if they are in that hyper-focused mode mm-hmm. and like they, they explore. I mean, I've seen like a lot of students that they used to skip classes. They used to stay stay late at uh, – one of the experiences we had, actually, with Lexi was to make sure that they have access to the labs. At night? At night. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: It surprised us. I mean, mm-hmm. okay. I mean, like, these are the people that they kind of like, – Should really they ask
2: me about it? I would have told you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so so I-, I think that that would be a good suggestion for our listeners that, like, if they are, again, like, we are assuming that they want to pursue kind of some – higher education or or at least they want to succeed more i mean even even k12 there are opportunities to get involved in activities extracurricular to give them like more i remember like last episode caitlin told us about her experience in the makers of space and how it boosted her confidence Mm -hmm. i mean make that trust bridge and like carrying that much load Probably it was not an essential part of the curriculum, but she took it that far and she gained confidence out of it. Mm
2: -hmm. I think that you're raising a really good point of exploring options outside of education. Of course, look for the options inside of education that can be nurturing. But there are other ways also to help yourself. Like we've said before, one of them is listening to podcasts like this. I'm going to suggest a couple of other things that I don't think we've talked about before. One, another one is meditation. Mm. From a medical point of view, from a non-medical point of view, it does amazing, wonderful things for your brain. So that's something to think about very strongly. Two other things. One of them is exercise. Mm. I mean, I'm going to sound like you know a cheerleader or something, but I think exor- there's, I, I don't think I know that exercise gives your brain resilience. So, it's really important to think about that. And the last thing I would say is to eat a proper diet. Wow. It's, it's, I, I mean, it sounds so basic, but these things are really, really important. And there's a lot of evidence in medicine underneath of all this. To and that make... is
0: amazing because, again, like I had this pro- chronic problem of anxiety. And when I started paying more attention to exactly those three, and the, it changed my life I know and I know it uh, did. my anxiety level is like at a at such a low level that mm-hmm. sometimes I have to relearn myself that like okay I mean like I am not supposed to be this like chill in this <laughs> yeah. moment I mean like I am gonna talk to this many people I mean like I have to feel something I mean where is that heart pounding that used to kind of just like shake me at the, at that moment and I, I 100% agree with you. Particularly, I think there is something, and I'm not suggesting anything supernatural, but in meditation
2: mm-hmm.
0: that can really help. And what is amazing about that, it is readily available. So it doesn't how depend do you, on insurance. Or, how do you
1: get into it though, as someone who it, I've been kind of scared to take that step into it, because I feel like it's Something that you have to either learn how to do, and I, I don't want to invest the time. I just don't know where to start. There's that. a whole bunch of apps you yeah. can you can. So apps are good. Apps are start. great. Yeah, There's... Waking
0: Off app, for example, mm-hmm. is one of the good ones. I have been using that. There are a lot of resources also. There are a lot of, like, uh, talks you can listen to very good teachers. It can
1: get intimidating
2: when there's so much out there. I think that one of the things that you could consider if you have trouble shutting your brain down enough to meditate is do an active meditation. Do one where you're walking and just let your mind be. That is a perfectly acceptable form of meditation. So I think there's lots of ways to do it. Don't think that there's one right or one wrong way. Do That's works.
1: really good to hear because I I always feel like there's a way to do it. There's not. There's a zillion oh, okay. ways to do
2: it. There's a zillion ways to do it. So experiment a little bit and find one that works for you. But it's definitely something that there are there are very good data looking at the positive effects of meditation on your brain. Yes. Very again, good data. like
0: my my experience is firsthand and uh, one data point, but nothing transformed my life the way that meditation because Mm -hmm. and it is such an entangled effect of different things for example like when you when i started meditation i felt that like i have more tendency to be active and then i have less tendency to eat unhealthy Mm -hmm. i was able to drastically cut down the amount of carbon sugar i was using and like that also helped and you know i for uh, maybe that's the. good question for you, given that your, your expertise is psychopharmacology, so you know the chemistry of brain, better than anyone probably in this building. If sugar and carbs, they do, I'm not saying uh, having harmful effect, but given like the nature of ADHD brain, if that kind of like stimulation that they get from that, if it messes up anything in, with attention, with like...
2: I'm so glad you asked me this question, because I'm going to tell you talk about one of my favorite topics, and that's inflammation. Mm. When you eat sugar and carbs, basically, you're training your body to be inflamed. And when you have in any kind of inflammatory process going on, what happens in your brain is that it dysregulates your neurotransmitters. It dysregulates your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, your fight or flight axis. These become dysregulated with a bad diet. And with any kind of inflammation, with chronic stress, Mm. chronic stress will make inflammation worse. So one of the things that I'm really saying underneath this all is that we really need to decrease our inflammation, Mm -hmm. like proper diet, exercise, meditation can help with that. So... With the inflammation? Sure. It calms your system down. You don't have a positive feedback loop of inflammation from the periphery, sending information to the cns saying "Uh oh there's a problem Mm. so the whole thing it's very involved but the bottom line is is that if you're in an inflamed state through poor diet no exercise and chronic stress your brain isn't working right your neurotransmitters aren't working right your fight-or-flight response is always on Mm. so decreasing inflammation is key and you can do it You can do it without going to the doctor. Diet and exercise and meditation.
0: And what, when you say diet?
2: Proper diet, the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, crazy or special. Just cut out the carbs, cut out the sugar, limit them. Do it in a reasonable manner. I mean, it's not, frankly, not rocket science. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you just get rid of carbs and sugar or you decrease them, your inflammatory quotient is going to be much lower. It doesn't again. It doesn't have to be a specific diet. Mm-hmm. It just understand that if you eat that kind of stuff, you're screwing yourself up. You're inflaming yourself all over, and that's just not good for you.
0: So yeah. when when you talk about diet, I mean, uh, you you mentioned that Mediterranean is one of the more balanced ones, but is it more on a lifestyle change and like being more aware of the ratios of things you're consuming? Or it's just like adhering to one like established no. type of like uh, those things that they sell ads for and no they give I, you packages of
2: I, it's more of a lifestyle change it's more of number one being aware of what you're putting in your mouth hmm. um, being aware of the composition of it I I actually use my fitness pal and that lets you figure out the carbs the protein the sugars. Just to be aware of that to start with, you don't even don't even change anything in the beginning. Just hey, look at the data, yeah. and then to just follow it, and and
0: and again, I don't want to promote any type of diet that's not scientifically. I'm not but saying that. Yeah. I, I, no, I, no, I'm not suggesting that you're doing it. I'm just saying, based on what I'm saying, is I have drastically cut down the amount of carbs that I take. So I don't know if it's. Suggestible. But what, what I want to say is I have become acutely aware of the moments that I crave something sweet or pasta or bread. And those are the times that I'm either anxious or mm-hmm. extremely tired. Mm-hmm. So is there anything
2: there? I wish I could address. I wish I knew the answer to that question. Um, I know that it's true. That when you're tired, feeling sick, um, or anxious, you're craving those carbs. So there must be something in the carbs that is assuaging that.
0: Is it something in the carbs or your body just needs a stimulant? I
2: don't know the answer Mm -hmm. to that. I wish I did. But I think just the awareness that when you're craving something like that, you need to stop and ask yourself, what am I really feeling here? Do I really want this carb that bad? Or is there something else going on? And
0: 99% of the cases for me is something else. Okay. Like is that today I had a tough day or it's just like many meetings or something else is going on in the background. It's just like, okay, so let's pass on this one.
1: And for grad students, I think that's so important. You know, being recently in that zone, you know, you just, there's such the emphasis on the work that you're doing Mm -hmm. and it breeds such unhealthy habits that it's then really really hard to get out of. I was my least healthy I think during grad school mm-hmm. and it's been really hard after, you know, 4 years to change some of those bad habits. You know, that's a really interesting point. I think I think it's really true that
2: it's hard to include diet and exercise and meditation no matter what stage of life you're in when you are in a situation where you're the bottom of the heap basically and you don't have a safe position for yourself in in your life i think the pressure is really hard and i think the pressure on you will give you more anxiety depression and less energy less reserve to eat right and to exercise and meditate and ironically it's just at that time when it's so important to
1: do it that's when you need it
2: the most right so i'm encouraging the folks who are listening Try to remember this, mm-hmm. even as hard as it is. Mm-hmm. Give it a whirl
1: anyway. Just try to find a little niche for yourself yes, to do it, that. You know, over the time, it's going to be so. Mm-hmm. It's going to change your experience. Yes. I say those smaller things. Yeah.
2: I tell everybody who comes to see me: diet, exercise, and meditation. And how many people listen? How many, what percent of the people do you think listen? Maybe two, <laughs> you know, but I say oh, try it for three months, hmm. you know, because three months gives you. so you're
0: g- giving formal, uh, uh, free counseling to
2: free th- counseling. Okay. <laughs> three months, give it a three month trial. That is enough time to start changing your neurobiology. You'll start rewiring if you try it consistently, not perfectly, but consistently for that kind of period of time. Just give it a whirl.
0: I'm, I'm a lived example for that. Yes, I, you are. I can say that it worked. And three months, yes. And it's interesting. You start seeing the effects of that in as early as two weeks. Mm-hmm. but And I, I still feel improvement every day. And now it's getting to other things, for example, like clarity. I see great. things are more clear to me. I mean, it was just a lot of like try and error and cluttered like view or misunderstanding of different situations. Now it's more clarity. I am finding myself acting when action is needed mm-hmm. and not doing much good when action is not warranted. I used to be just so impulsive and just jumping. Mm-hmm. I mean, like every email, well, boom, I mean like I just like I have to be on it I mean like it doesn't matter if it's for Six months ago uh, six months later Or like it's an immediate like something is burning So I I Totally agree with you and it it, it is It is very important that For those that they are experiencing Anxiety depression For any reason it's not it doesn't need to be Necessarily related to experiences As a neurodiverse person You can help Yourself Immediately Mm -hmm. Not worrying about what your insurance like That's allows right. you to do or
2: That's right. Yes. If you go look on Google mm-hmm. and you'll find out some answers that will probably be very helpful. You don't have to go into the medical system. You can start the effort outside of that. That's fine.
0: I- I'm very happy that we got to talk about this so extensively. I think this is this is very important for our listeners out there. <laughs> I'm mindful of your time and I don't want to keep you too long here. There's one more question I want to ask you. I mean this is not the last one though. One major point we want to kind of like talk about is if you imagine an ideal medical system related to mental health how that looks like. I mean don't worry about insurance or things like that. The way patient doctor dynamic needs to change or...
2: Somehow, I think there needs to be a different concept of time, mm. time spent with a person. And the person, I-, I wish that the medical system had not divided up all of the body into different parts. Mm. So, you know, like a GI, per- a gastroenterologist will only look at the GI system and a neurologist will only a look at more certain, holistic approach. Right. I wish there were a more holistic approach. I just feel like there's not very much of a place for that, unfortunately, in medicine these days. I think the f- closest we come to it is in family practice. Mm-hmm. They do tend to take more time and you know, look at folks from a more holistic point of view. I, I think in our field, in psychiatry, I wish that we could do that. I wish more people what, what would do What percentage
0: of your colleagues do you think they're suggest med meditation, exercise, diet when they see patients?
2: Being optimistic, I would say maybe twenty five percent. That's so low. But being realistic maybe about ten percent, which is sad. Hmm.
1: That's really surprising, seeing as that's you know, surprising. there's no medication that can do those things.
2: Well, aren't we in the medication business? Ah. Hmm. You know, people well, you know, part of the problem is is that Even if you tell people to do these things, nobody does it except you or you know. But nobody does it. So after a while, you stop saying it. Mm -hmm. But it's possible that in primary care, they're saying this more than in psychiatry. I don't think psychiatry, I could be wrong about that, but I don't think that a lot of psychiatrists are so much aware of this whole notion of inflammation and how it affects your brain and some of the ways you can reduce that
0: thank you joyce i I really appreciate your time. I'm gonna ask you the last two questions that I ask every guest, but before that, Lexi, is there anything that you want to talk about or ask
2: Joyce?
1: I don't think so. I think we covered a lot feels like we did I know now I'm right, good. I'm, I'm going. already thinking about this has reinvigorated me to- <laughs> Learn how to meditate and do that. I was working on portion control for a while, uh-huh. which that's still good. But now just increasing that, you know, protein and veggies and some of yeah. those good. Mediterranean things. I feel like it's just like a self-help <laughs> session for myself. Good. That's
0: what we talked about.
1: Yeah. Good.
0: That's what we talked about. I mean, there is I'm no line between for self-help it. and helping others. Yeah. My first question is, closing question is, what would be your suggestion, a piece of wisdom, advice you want to share with a 12-year-old, 13-year-old?
2: That's such a hard age.
0: Maybe you can think about your 12 year 13-year-old self.
2: If I had a 14-year-old patient, I-, I would wish for him to not be so worried about mm. what his peers are thinking. I would wish for him to be thinking in a more confident manner about himself which would take some time and effort to achieve i would wish for that i would wish for those people if they're having trouble if they're feeling really crappy confide in your parents or your friends or a safe person find somebody to help you Mm -hmm. that's what i would be saying to kids like that and in particular at that age i think the peer validation is so important yeah Try to recognize that it's not the be-all and end-all. And the other thing I would suggest, which is, has been borne out by the Happiness Project at Yale or the happiness class that they have at Yale, mm-hmm. start thinking about helping other people. Put your focus outside of yourself a little bit. And I, I think that could be very helpful to a young person.
0: Mm. And the second question is identical with the first one, but the age is different now. A college-age person, what would your advice be?
2: Are we talking about neurodiverse?
0: If you have anything, advices that are specific to neurodiverse ones, yes, go for it.
2: I think that I would suggest educating himself or herself about different ways of thinking about the world, rather than a rigid way. If you're stuck in an anxious and Think there's no other option. So number one, number one, educate yourself. I think you guys, you young people, are so much better at accessing what's available out there than people my age. So I would say, access the podcasts, look at the TED Talks, do do that to try to help yourself. But I would also suggest a diet, exercise, and meditation. Mm. Um, you can do things outside of the medical system that I think are helpful. And finally, I, I would say. Don't hesitate to find a good therapist or a good psychiatrist. See what you can do about finding that. It's hard, I know, sometimes, but it's worth it. And if you're in a system like a university system, there are often student health services that can be helpful. Yes. So talk to Great your friends, advice. but don't let yourself be stuck in a bad situation.
0: Thank you very much, Joyce. I really appreciate that you agreed to share your insight and wisdom with us. It was extremely useful. I personally benefited from that. It was assuring, it was heartwarming, and it gave me more energy and confidence that, I mean, your stamp of validation that this podcast, the information we are putting out there could be helpful because you have seen many, many people, you have seen many, many struggles. So if you think this content will be useful to them, I trust you heartedly. And at the end, I want to first thank you, WHUS radio, Yukon's radio for generously letting us to use their recording studio. I appreciate their generosity. I want to ask that our listeners subscribe to this Podcast. So when we release new episodes, they get notified. We are not receiving any advertisement. We are not spending any money to advertise this. So the only way people may know about this is by you guys sharing it with others and encouraging them to share this with others and also leaving comments, rating us on Apple Podcasts. And we will include the apps and resources that we mentioned in the description of the podcast. If you want to reach out to us, you can send email through hello at squarepexpodcast.com. So, thank you very much for being with us and until the next time.
2: Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Alexi.
1: No problem. (laughs) I I, I got too awkward at the end.